You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Charlie, Ben, and Adeline. Adeline is, attends Alliance Bible Fellowship, where my son is one of the pastors, Michael Talley, who will be here for the young adult uh, weekend in late September, and we'll be preaching on Sunday morning as well. So uh, I hope you do take advantage of the opportunity to get to know Adeline and what she's doing. It's a perfect mission moment for the message today. I want to say, before I go any further, welcome to Grace Community Church. Uh, A lot going on here. Uh, We have Grace Connection class that David mentioned uh, coming up September 17 and 18. If you are not a member but you would like to be a member at Grace or if you would just like to know more about Grace, there are things that are a little bit different here. Elder Rule is new for some people. That weekend, Saturday morning, October 17, and then Sunday morning in the first service, or between the services, be meeting in the back or in the first and bleeding over a little bit into the uh, in-between time. But in, So September 17 and 18, if you've not uh, gone through Grace Connection, let me encourage you to do that, including... High school students, if you're 15 years old, we'd love for you to be in that class also and become an official member so we can call you every three months and say, hey, where's the money? We're not getting, I'm kidding, I'm I'm kidding. I don't know who gives what, and that's a good thing. So, um, but we want you to be a member just like your parents are. You, you, You get along with them for a while, but at 15, it's time to start taking your own steps. And then October 2nd, we're going to have a mission fair. We've got that young adult uh, ministry on the weekend in between. And then a mission fair on October 2nd. You'll be hearing a lot more about that. That's going to be really exciting. On Sunday night, Roy Lytle from Suriname is going to be preaching in the morning. He's as close to the Apostle Paul as anybody I've known in my adult life. So uh, you'll enjoy being there. But for now, once again, welcome. It's an exciting time of the year, is it not? Fall is my favorite time of the year. I bet some of you would say the same. I love fall. It's followed by winter, then spring, then so I hate summer. So I am glad we're at this point of the year heading to cooler weather. Uh, In many ways, August marks the beginning of the new Church year, just like it's the beginning of the new school year. And fall, you can just get a sense that it won't be too long before it won't be 95 for a high in the day. It'll be 90 in October, it feels like. Uh, so again, I want to say welcome to students, the students who are back. If you're brand new this year, welcome to you. If you're uh, a high school student, a family, undergrad, postgrad, whoever you are, welcome to Grace Community Church. I know that some of you are excited because it's football season, right? I mean, it's also volleyball season, soccer season, training for a lot of other seasons. Seasons, wrestlers will get going pretty soon, other sports. Golf is going on. I always remind my wife, Allison, because she says, I'm a classic football widow. You know, during the fall, we don't spend as much time as we do at other times of the year. But I always remind her, as I did last night, there is no live football on Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Although there is rumor that the NFL is working on a Tuesday night game. That would be okay with me, but not okay with Allison probably. It's appropriate to be thinking about sports as we approach today's text. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 27. I will explain why in a few minutes. If you're new here, it would be helpful for you to know that we are going through a series in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, The insert that's in your bulletin has three lists from last week's sermon that I thought would be helpful in providing context for the book of 1 Corinthians. 
the, the context for this book will give you an idea of, of, of some of the unique features in 1 Corinthians that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. A lot of the subjects that are in there are, are treated very thoroughly. Paul delved into important subjects that were often only mentioned in passing, if at all, in other New Testament books. But he did it really mostly in the form of rebuke. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you think, man, that Apostle Paul is a tough guy. Well, that's not the sense you get in most of the New Testament books, but a lot was going on in Corinth, and he was dealing with these things very directly. The advantage for us is that we get to think about uh, New Testament church activities, practices, thoughts at a deeper level than we do when we're in other books because he deals with the uh, topic so thoroughly here. The immediate context for today's message is found at the top of the sheet that you have in the uh, bulletin. In chapters 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the need for believers to give up their rights, if need be, for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's a question. What activities would you be willing to give up for the sake of other people in the church? Now, I, I went to a really conservative Bible college. I was in a fairly conservative church in the mountains during the years that I was Teen Valley, at Teen Valley Ranch. And our pastor's wife was in that mix, you know. I mean, our church, like I say, was fairly conservative. And a lot of people in that day thought that women shouldn't be wearing pants. And the, and the lady said, the pastor's wife said, I ain't trading my pants for no preacher. I get it. I get what she's saying. What would you be willing to trade for your brothers and sisters in Christ? People in, in, in the church that might be hurt by some of the activities that you have full freedom before the Lord in your conscience to participate in. Paul also wrote about his decision to not receive financial assistance from the Corinthians because he didn't want to be beholden to any particular group. The patronage system was very strong in that day. Charlie Williams, who was up here a little while ago, and I were talking this week about the patronage system today, oftentimes goes through politics. You're beholden to certain people who have political views that speak for everyone else, and you have to be very careful to get to be able to get what you need and, and to keep your cred when you're in this group by saying the right thing. So you're beholden to people very easily who can take advantage of you. So Paul gave up his rights to a paycheck for the sake of the gospel. In today's text, we're going to be encouraged to follow Paul's example of giving up his right to an easy life and his right to a lazy gospel presentation for the lost. Now think about that. He gave up his right to a lazy gospel presentation. Adeline was asking for prayer for all the right things. Pray for my theological understanding, my Training in ways to witness to Muslims. You can't witness to Muslims the same way you witness to people who grew up in America in a largely Christian, not as much as it used to be, but went to church growing up. You have to adjust the way that you witness. You don't adjust the gospel, but you adjust the way that you present the gospel. To get his point across... Uh, the Apostle Paul used an athletic analogy of the sacrifice that world-class athletes were required to make to be allowed to compete in the games that were held in Corinth, known as the Isthmian Games, that were second only in importance to the ancient Olympics. Olympics, and those were held every four years, only 80 kilometers away, a little over 50 miles away, from Corinth was the city of Athens, but in 
In Corinth, which was located on the edge of an isthmus, an isthmus in the old days or even in the new days is a stretch of land. It's a narrow strip of land that's only four miles across that connects two larger sections of land, and it's surrounded by water as well. So water and land on both sides. It's not an island. It's sort of like an island, but it connects those sections of land. So the Isthmian Games held every two years and would have been held when Paul was there, probably in A.D. 51 or 53. Uh, All of this information, hang on to it, is going to come bubbling back to the surface later. Well, actually, it's going to come roaring out of the water like a humpback whale, but I am mixing metaphors now. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 9.27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It's our custom to stand as the scripture is being read out of respect for God's word. So if you would please stand. Again, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I, Paul, the Apostle Paul, am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. I am sure that this is a familiar text to many of you, although maybe not to all. When when we read a familiar text, it is easy for some of its impact to be lost on us. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. I, I, I've, I've heard this one before. If we heard these words of Paul spoken with the passion that he wrote, uh, with, with which he wrote to the Corinthians, we would be thinking, man, that was intense. Indeed, these words are intense. All the adjustments and sacrifices that the Apostle Paul described were done for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of those who do not know Jesus. But before we get too far, let's think about the word gospel, which comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. So what is the good news? It begins with bad news. We are sinners and have no hope of winning our case in heaven's court. When we stand before the gate, and Peter is there in the jokes, but when Jesus, when we stand before Jesus at the judgment, we have no hope of winning our case if something has not been done about our sin. When we stand before a holy and righteous God, we will find that we His created beings fall short of the requirements that must be met if we are to live eternally with him. Our sins, in fact, have separated us from God. 
And when we stand before God for judgment, we will recognize that there was absolutely nothing we, have, we could have done that would have made it okay between us and God. You know, when you mess up, sometimes you think, oh, if I had just done it this way, if I had just thought more about it, if I could have only... None of that. We'll recognize where we are in the presence of a holy God. And our punishment will be in our sinful condition. Eternal separation from God in hell. That's bad news. Because it applies to everyone. And it is very bad news indeed. But that's what makes the good news so Very good. The good news is this. Because of God's love for us, and only heaven knows why, he would be attracted to us. You think about your attractions to other people. There's something that attracts you to them. There was nothing that should have attracted God's attention. We, his created beings, rebelled fully against him. So why he loved us, only heaven knows. But God the Father did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, to live a perfect life, keeping God's law in every way. The only way we could ever get to heaven was to to obey the law completely, and we couldn't do that because we're sinful when we're born. And so there's no chance of us doing it the right way. But Jesus did it the right way. He died in our place as the perfect sacrifice. And when we acknowledge that we are sinners who deserve punishment, and when we confess that we believe that Jesus died in our place, then Romans 10, 13 becomes a reality. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, almost always when you see the term Lord in the New Testament, it refers to Jesus. Almost every, or everyone, not almost, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. All through the book of 1 Corinthians, we read this gospel message with the cross of Jesus at the center. And we read that it is foolishness to unbelievers. How could a Messiah sent from God die the most humiliating death imaginable? How is that possible? It, for us, it's like, oh yeah, of course, Jesus died for me. But can you imagine in the first century... Talking about crucifixion that really wasn't even spoken of in polite company. You couldn't, you couldn't go to a, a party and somebody say, hey, what about that crucifixion the other day? It'd be, it would be very awkward. You would kind of slink out after that. You, you couldn't stay. It was so humiliating. So how could a Messiah die that sort of death? I was thinking about Psalm 22.3 that David had on the screen in between, in one of the interludes, and how God is exalted, a holy God is exalted, even though it's about to, it's speaking about the crucifixion. When Jesus felt that the heavens were silent and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even then, God was a good and righteous and holy God. So how could a Messiah die on the cross? Paul's response would would be, didn't I tell you this? Didn't I tell you that the gospel only makes sense to those who believe? And as I said last week, at least in one of the services, it's, it's not... Show me, God, that you exist so that I can believe, but it's believe. What I'd say, and I'll show you. Many of you know that is exactly the truth in your life. That's how it happened. Believe me. Believe that I sent my son to die for you. Repent of your sins and believe, and I'll show you that I exist. 
So the gospel only makes sense to those who humble themselves and believe. Even though parts of the gospel are given over and over in 1 Corinthians, perhaps the best place to understand the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's what he's saying. This is who we are in our sinful condition. This is who Jesus is, perfect, holy, and we got to be like this, but we're like this, and there's nothing we can do to become like that. But God made it so that Jesus would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange, his righteousness for our sin. When we repent and believe, we trade our sin for his righteousness. That's what he does for us. Baptism symbolizes it. The table reminds us that we are related to him because of his work, not because of our good works. So when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you cannot help but ask, if that's the gospel, then were the people that Paul rebuked repeatedly in 1 Corinthians even Christians? Well, the answer was given at the very beginning of the book when Paul wrote that the members of the church were sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were called to be saints. God's grace in Jesus had been given to them and it would sustain them to the end when they would be presented guiltless before Jesus at the judgment. And you can only look at all that and say, huh? Really? These people are going to be presented guiltless at the judgment? These were the same people that Paul rebuked at almost every turn in his letter to them. So what was up? Well, perhaps it would help if we understood the difference between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Now, those of you that have been here for a while say, don't we talk about this a good bit? Yes, we do. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Because it affects everything about our understanding of the gospel and understanding of how this life should be lived. And several times after I have talked about a theology of the cross, theology of glory, people will say, oh man, that was so great. That was really great. I never heard that before. I've said it multiple times, but we hear when we're supposed to hear, right? We understand when we're supposed to understand. We learn in layers. So if you're thinking, I don't have really a lot of sense about what you're saying, just hang in there. It will make sense over time. In the early days of the Reformation, um, in the 16th century, Martin Luther categorized those who had an interest in God as either theologians of glory or theologians of the cross. So essentially he was saying everybody is a theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross because everybody thinks about God. Even if you say, well, I don't believe that a loving God could allow all of these bad things to happen. Therefore, I conclude that there is no God. Isn't it interesting that people who don't believe in God spend so much time talking about how awful he is. So we're all theologians, right? And to understand what a theologian of the cross is as opposed to a theologian of, of glory helps us understand a great deal about Scripture, about church, churches, and, and it and helps us to understand a great deal about ourselves as well. So how do you know if you're one or the other? Well, these definitions might help you make sense of a complex subject. A theologian of glory is this, or a theology. Let's just say a theology of glory. It's a lot simpler. Gene Veith gave this 
description or this definition. A theology of glory expects total success. Finding all the answers, winning all the battles, living happily ever after. The theology of glory is about my strength, my power, my works. In other words, a theology of glory is all about me. Now, a person in a denomination in America, Catholic, doesn't matter, whatever denomination, a person who would identify as a Christian who is saying, I'm hoping I can be good enough to get to heaven, is living a theology of glory. Muslims are living a theology of glory. We have to live this way to please Allah. Buddhist, Hindus, everybody is trying to get better. Can I be good enough? That's a theology of glory. A theology of the cross, on the other hand, says our sin has separated us from God. Since we can never undo the wrong we have done, and since our very nature is sinful from birth, it is impossible to reach God through our own efforts. Because he loved us, God made a way for us to live with him for eternity by sending his son to live the life we we were incapable of living, to die the death that we deserve. Because when Jesus died on the cross, wrath was poured out on Jesus. The, The cup of wrath that you read about over 500 times in the Old Testament, rather than going towards sinners, went on the perfect Lamb of God, that sacrifice. And when we hide behind the cross, then the wrath misses us. When he was done, he said, it is finished. So I'm not saying that he's continually dying for us. That's not so, or continuously dying for us. He said, it is finished, it was done. But when we believe, then our sins are forgiven. So... We understand that those who were not saved and are trying to make themselves presentable to God are living a theology of glory. But is it possible that Christians practice a theology of glory? Well, yes, it is. In the oddest kind of way, you think that these Corinthians were really bad Christians because they did this, this, and this. No, they were practicing a theology of glory. They were not where they should be, but they were practicing a theology of glory. The prosperity gospel, which relies on misapplying biblical promises, implies that if you do the right thing, God must Bless you. You put him in a place where he has no option but to bless you. Because I take this promise in scripture. If you will do this, then good things will happen to you always. Formulae or formulas, if you prefer, abound in a theology of glory. If this and this happen, then that's got to be the result. The Corinthians divided themselves. They separated themselves into groups. The wealthy and educated class um, within the church thought that their riches and knowledge were indications of God's favor towards them. But from the earliest lines of his letter, the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians that gospel preachers are called to preach not how good you can be, but Christ and him crucified. A theology of the cross is the only meaningful message for those who do not know Jesus and for those who do. All that has been said to this point is foundation for our text. But once we understand the context of the message and this foundation that has been laid all the way through 1 Corinthians, then the text becomes almost self-explanatory. So Paul indirectly encourages us to do the same thing that he is doing. But he also will say in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You'd be really surprised at how few times that, that, that the apostles command church members to witness 
in the New Testament. But it's expected, it's understood that if we have the gospel truth, we will give the gospel truth to others. So, in the first portion of our text, it is a big deal for Paul to say that he is freeing. As a Jew, he used to be subject to all the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Now, in Christ, he is free from all that, and there's no further need to sacrifice animals since Jesus died for his sins. It's interesting, Paul identifies himself often as the, the apostle to the Gentiles. God appointed him to take this gospel message to the Gentiles, but in the beginning verses of Romans 9 and also the beginning verses of Romans 10, Paul poured out his heart to the Lord, praying that his Jewish brothers and sisters would believe in Jesus. He knew that he could not share the gospel with ultra-conservative Jews in the same manner that he would share with pagan Gentiles. Where appropriate, Paul observed Jewish customs um, and, and did nothing to offend the religious sensibilities of his kins. Did he have the right to forsake these activities? Yes, he did. He was free in Christ. But he gave up his rights for the sake of the laws. Even as he observed the religious practices when he was in the presence of those who hoped in the law. That's where their hope lay in the law. Then even still... Paul's hope was in Jesus. In the presence of Gentiles, Paul said, even though I need not keep all the requirements of the Mosaic law, and I don't keep those when I'm trying to witness to Gentiles, even still, I am subject to the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ did not have the, the sacrificial and the ceremonial elements of the, of the Mosaic law. But the law of Christ goes to the heart of who we are. And in fact, it's, it elevates the law to an even higher standard. In the Old Testament, you cannot kill somebody. In the New Testament, in Jesus' law, if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. Can't do it. You have to forgive even as you've been forgiven. And forgive without people asking for your forgiveness. We have to do that. That's a tough standard. It was, in fact, Paul's heart of love that overflowed for Jesus because of the things that Jesus had done for him. That heart of love for Jesus, it was, that drove Paul to give up his rights and to do all he could do. To bring people into a relationship with the Lord. And to help those who already knew Jesus. To grow into a more mature Christian walk. And Paul said about the weak. Or the outcast. And the less desirable. I became as one of them. So that by all means I might save some. Look we know that Paul understood that Jesus does the saving. But his point was simply that he gladly empathized and identified with all so that at least some would believe and be saved. The gospel never changes. The truth of scripture never changes. But surely it is appropriate to contextualize the message so that the person to whom we are witnessing has as few obstacles between her and the cross as possible. That's our job is to stay out of the way of the message of the cross. And don't distract people doing all that stuff. I debated whether I should do this or not. If I debate it, I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to regret it later. But my dad, uh, my dad was a funny man, and I, from I, I shouldn't say this in family worship month because uh, I'm going to get a lot of parents in trouble. But from six or seven years old, he never told me when I had to go to bed. He just said, "Oh, stay up as late as you want." 
I, I was a night owl, not as much anymore the last year or two. But one night, I was downstairs uh, watching Johnny Carson. I love The Tonight Show. Look, back when comedy was really comedy, you know, it was really funny. But Johnny Carson was on, and it was late in the show, and my dad came walking down, his hair's a mess. And he's in, a, he's in a, a, a robe, you know, a bathrobe, a white robe with the tie and everything, and his slippers, and he's coming down, and he's, he's looking at me pretty sternly, and I thought, I think he's going to say something. I don't, don't think it's going to be pretty. And he got down to the bottom of the steps, and he just went, and in this corner, weighing 147 pounds, Spider Lucas, which should help explain some of them. My own antics. And Paul said, I don't do that stuff. When I train, I train like wrestlers. And if you train like wrestlers, right, you're really training. If love for Jesus motivated Paul to share the gospel in the best way possible, it was self-discipline that enabled him to pursue every opportunity that the Lord brought his way. Verses 24 to 27, which are startling the first time we read them, are even more so when we understand the reality of the athletic analogy from which Paul made his point. The Isthmian Games, remember, were second in importance only to the Olympic Games. And many of the, uh, of the regulations that applied to the Olympics applied to the Isthmian Games as well. All the towns and cities all over sent athletes to compete. The athletes had to, and the athletes had to sign a consent form that for 10 months while they trained under the watchful eyes of supervisors, for 10 months they would not drink alcohol and be in family worship month. Let's say they were not allowed to participate in marital activities for 10 months. They had to sign this release and then supervisors would watch them and if they didn't practice as hard as they should have, the supervisors could whip them. And it was just about the only time a Roman citizen could be publicly whipped. This was a big deal. The pressure on these athletes was intense. And look, if I told you this morning, our friend is going to be in the, in the lobby afterwards, but in this service today is a silver medalist from the last Olympics. You would be like, whoa, there'd be an immediate buzz in the house. Second place wasn't an option in the ancient times. People would go, they'd train for 10 months, and it was, if it was obvious that they were not going to win this race or this event, a lot of them would sneak out of the compound at night and go home. If you came in second place, you come home and you expect mama to say, oh, I'm so proud of my boy, you're just as likely to get talked to the hand. You were disgraced in your town if you didn't win. Now think about that. Paul saying what he said about the discipline that is required for me to be the servant of the Lord that I ought to be. It's the level of importance that Paul put on the privilege and responsibility assigned to him to share Christ with the lost. He wasn't running for his health. Or shadow boxing as a wannabe. He gave everything he had so that he wouldn't lose the reward that awaits those who love Jesus at this level. And he wanted that reward. Paul was not saying in verse 27, I persevere lest I fall short of heaven. But rather, I persevere lest I fall short of the reward that will be mine if I love Jesus and others more and myself, you can't. How do you come to that conclusion? Why? Well, because he's talking to Christians all the way through here. These are sanctified people who are going to be presented guiltless. But there will be a reward 
system. And we ought to want to be in on those rewards. So, is there any application for us? (laughs) Oh my. I'm going to share three ways for us to apply this text. But these are only meant to be starters. First, care enough about others to comfortably enter their world for the purpose of sharing the message of the cross with them. Adeline's not only going to have to adjust to the Swedish way of life, she's going to have to adjust to the way of life of Muslims in a European country. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some, Paul said. Is there anything for which you would sacrifice to the level that Paul did to see your goal accomplished? The book of Acts tells us that Paul shared Christ with the Jews in the synagogues by pointing to the Old Testament text. And he says, you know, all of this is pointing to Jesus. Paul, I'm sure, said in some of those times what the author of Hebrews says. We all knew that the blood of bulls could not take away sin. We all knew that it just covered it for a time and that there there had to be something else. Paul reasoned with the Gentiles in the marketplace. In Acts 16, we read that since Timothy's mother was Jewish, which made him Jewish, Paul made sure that Timothy was circumcised so that he would not be an offense to the Jews to whom Paul and Timothy would be witnessing. In Acts 17, on Mars Hill in Athens, Paul quoted secular philosophers to move his listeners toward the God who created all things, after which he presented Christ. In Romans 1, 14 and 15, Paul confessed that God had placed him under obligation to preach the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles or to the religious and the non-religious and to the wise and the foolish or to the sophisticated and the not so sophisticated. To win others to Christ, you must be able to speak with them in ways that will allow them to feel secure enough to consider the gospel. Now, it's not how everybody gets saved. A lot of people get saved by observing But it does not matter how much you know or how little you know. God wants you to be bold enough to share across cultural lines, racial, ethnic. It doesn't matter. There's one gospel that brings us all into the body of Christ. Today's cultural climate does not encourage open dialogue. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. But um, we need to care enough about others to approach them, not with our political or social views, but with the gospel. So are we allowed to have personal views as believers? Oh, yes, we are. And there are many different views in this house. But there's one thing about which we must agree. It's the gospel. Scripture provides us with a robust social imaginary or a worldview. But if you have a 1 Corinthians 9 sort of heart, then you're going to need to keep your political and social views off of social media. And I'm not kidding. Stop it. If you're doing it, stop it. Because you can't be all things to all people. If all you care about is the issue du jour, it's going to be a different one tomorrow. The gospel never changes. And the gospel is the only thing ultimately we need to know and believe. It's good when we care enough about those who are not like us to enter their worlds in a non-offensive manner. To win the right to share the best news the world has ever been told. So you're thinking, oh, this article is going to change so many minds. I got I to gotta throw this on, on Instagram. I got it. This is the only one. It really changes things for eternity. 
Please do not be offensive in your witness. The cross is offense enough. Because the cross says you're really not good enough. People don't like to hear that. But when your eyes are open and you can see, oh, but Jesus was good enough. Man, what a day. I heard an interview this past week with Duke Divinity Professor Norman Wiersma, in which he said that professors in other academic fields are beginning to be curious about a biblical theology of creation. You know why? Because all of their other thoughts about the environment are leaving them totally exhausted and nothing has really happened. So what does it mean that God created the world and put all the creatures... In it, did God not say to Job, you don't even think about these creatures, but I'm thinking about them all the time. God loves his creation. He loves his people. But the gospel message is the only one that has the kind of sustainability that any of us need. Okay, so we're going to leave that one to weird spot, but you get the point. Second. You cannot win others to Christ if you do not witness. Pray for opportunities and get busy. Why, why don't we witness more than we do? Some of you share Christ whenever you have the opportunity, but many of us tend to be a little reluctant because we know that the gospel is likely to offend some with whom we share Christ. I don't want to make people mad. In fact, I just need to stay at this level For many years, and then, boom, I'll hit them with the gospel at the right time. Well, there's some level of sense in that, but it also, the opportunities pass. Take advantage of the opportunities that are given. I don't think the Apostle Paul cared one whit about the consequences of his witness. Not that he was like, come on, beat me, I'll show you. But if he shared and he was beaten... He didn't care. He cared about what the Lord would think of him if he failed a witness. Which leads to the last point of application. Ask God for a heart to pursue rewards and thus pursue his pleasure. You remember chariots of fire? When I run, I feel his pleasure. Even While you pursue and live a theology of the cross. There are several places in the New Testament where the writer of the letter tells the recipients that he desires a crown or a reward when he stands before Jesus. But that's hard for those of us who understand that everything comes from his hand and it's all about him. And, and wouldn't, a theology, wouldn't it be a theology of glory if we do the, what we do for a reward? Well, it depends on the motive, the motivation for doing things for a reward. Scripture all over the place is nuanced, and Americans don't do nuance very well. We like a one, two, three, boom, boom, boom. Reductionist thinking at its finest. A theology of glory always seeks one's own own benefit, while a theology of the cross always recognizes that the one who is carrying a cross and following Jesus is already living for Jesus and for others. But wouldn't a message that always focuses on, on what Jesus does for us cause us to relax in what we do for him? We do not understand the gospel if we think that salvation frees us to live any way we want to. Ask God for a heart that loves him so much that you are compelled to share the gospel with the lost for your entire life. One last time, verses 24 to 27. Do you not know? That in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize. We're not competing against others. We're really competing 
with ourselves. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Not just that he works out, but there are a lot of things that he gives up. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Pine or celery. It's going to be nothing in less than a week. So I do not run aimlessly. We do it for an imperishable crown. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. Lord, give us the heart that Paul exhibited in this letter. We know, even if we didn't know Paul, we would know that your word uh, is not empty. These are not empty words. These are true words that Paul cared at this level. And we pray that our hearts might be drawn to the same level of commitment to care so deeply about those that you created who are still in sin. Remind us we're no better than them and we desperately want to get the message that Jesus died for us. Jesus died for you. May it be true for us in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand together? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.